So some of you have heard the story about the three bills that were in the cash register hanging out together, right? There was a $1 bill, a $20 bill, and a $100 bill. Well, the, uh, the $20 bill and the, and the $1 bill asked the $100 bill, what's your life like? And the $100 bill said, man, my, my life's pretty good. It's fancy, nice restaurants, resorts, um, you know, pretty good vacations. It's not a bad life. And then with that, the, uh, the $1 bill and the $100 bill asked the $5 bill or no, the $20 bill, what's your life like? And he said, my life's okay. Nice restaurants, lots of valet stands, um, you know, gambling bets, things like that. It's kind of fun, right? And with that, the $100 bill and the $20 bill asked the $1 bill, hey, what's your life like? And he looked at him with a long face. He says, man, my life's pretty boring. It's just church, 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 church. You've heard it before, I'm sorry, I love that though. <laughs> How many of you have heard of a guy named Elon Musk? He was born in 1971 in Pretoria, South Africa. Very intelligent and yet peculiar uh, child. He came first to college in Canada, then transferred to the University of Pennsylvania where he went to school. He was an entrepreneur and became an investor at a young age. He helped co-found PayPal in the year 2000. He, two companies merged to form PayPal. He founded SpaceX in 2002, a space flight services company. Um, in 2004, he was an early investor in an electric car company called Tesla. Have you heard of Teslas before? And later he became the CEO. Last year, he bought the social media platform Twitter and there was lots of news around that. He paid $44 billion for Twitter. People estimate that Elon Musk is worth close to $195 billion, but nobody really knows for sure. That makes him the second richest person in the world. Now, Musk is often viewed as controversial because he's really not known for having a filter. And he has lots of interesting sayings, and I was looking up some of these this week, like, I'd rather be optimistic and wrong than pessimistic and right. I'd like to die on Mars, but just not on impact. <laughs> Life is too short for long-term grudges. It's okay to have all your eggs in one basket as, as long as you control what happens to the basket. One time in a press conference, he was being asked questions, and, and he said, you know, boring Bonehead questions are not cool. These questions are killing me. When something is important enough, you do it, even if the odds are not in your favor. Musk was apparently baptized into the Anglican faith as a child, but he really doesn't claim a religion. One time, he was asked about his views on Jesus, and he said this, I agree with the principles that Jesus advocated. There's some great wisdom in those principles. Things like turn the other cheek, because an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind and we need to teach our children that. Forgiveness is important, he said, in treating people as you would like to be treated. But Musk has said that he wants to produce things that will help humanity. And obviously he is talking about big things because everything the guy does is big. But not everybody likes him or has warmed up to him. But in terms of what he's accomplished, He's a pretty fascinating human being. We've been studying Mark's gospel during the Lenten season. 
Mark's the oldest gospel written by John Mark based on Peter's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Today we move ahead to chapter 10 uh, where Jesus encounters the rich man. You know, I was reading this text about Jesus' encounter with the rich man this week and then rereading it and a thought popped in my head. What if Jesus had an encounter with Elon Musk? How would that go? What would that conversation look like? Wouldn't you like to hear it? What do you think Jesus might say to old Elon? What do you think Elon might say to Jesus? Last week I mentioned the, the Harvard Happiness Study, a new book that came out called The Good Life that I'd highly recommend to you. And one of the things that they have looked at since 1938 in studying happiness and human well-being is this question of does money and income in a person's life have a huge impact when it comes to happiness? In other words, does happiness go up incrementally as a person attains more money? And, and most of the research says, no, it, it doesn't. That once basic needs are met in life, food, shelter, shelter clothing, that your happiness doesn't incrementally go up as your income or your wealth goes up. More security, yes. More stability, yes. But not necessarily more happiness. But it's hard to argue that we do live in a world and a culture that's pretty obsessed with money, driven by money, focused on money. Money means power and influence, accomplishment and prestige. Money is often the way that we judge or size up another person, whether they have been successful in their life or not. Money drives politics and perspectives and campaigns and elections. And you know what? I think Jesus was well aware of all that. I've always believed that you can tell more about a person by the way that they spend their money and their time than anything else. Which is why Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Heart always follows treasure, but treasure doesn't always follow heart. If you invest your money in something, you will pay attention to how it's doing. If you invest your time into something, that means that you care. Mark says that a rich man comes up to Jesus and kneels before him and says this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all of these since my youth. What, what more do I lack? And Jesus looked at the man and he loved him and he said, you know, you lack one thing. Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven and then you can come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now, this is a difficult text. Always has been. Many preachers conveniently skip over it, to be honest with you. It's a text that many people don't know what to do with because of the challenge that Jesus presents to the rich man. Sell everything you own? Give all the money to the poor? What will he live on? Is that really what we have to do to follow Jesus Christ? Do we have to give it all away? And if so, then why? Why anybody else do with that? 
I've always believed that there is something missing in this passage. Mark doesn't include it. We simply don't know what Jesus saw in this man that made him issue the challenge. And the only answer that I can come up with is that if it became abundantly clear to Jesus that this rich man was completely attached to and defined by his wealth and his possessions. And even though he had kept all the other commandments his entire life, his material possessions were keeping him from fullness of life. This man apparently could not fathom existing apart from his possessions. They defined who he was. He was rich and everybody knew it. So what about us? Could we exist apart from our possessions? Do the things that we own in life define us and who we are and what we're known for? Are we so attached to our stuff that if we were to be taken away all of it one day, we'd be in despair? I was talking to a couple in this church a few years ago. The couple's done really well very successful, very influential. And I was just kind of talking to them about, well, what is it that's, that's made your marriage last all these years? And you know what they said to me? If we had to go back to living in that tiny little apartment that we were in during college and right after, we'd still be okay because we love each other. And that's what matters. All this stuff is nice but it's not what matters the most. There are some takeaways from this passage that I want to leave you with today, and I want you to think about them. These are my takeaways. They don't have to be yours, but this is what I kind of come up with reflecting upon Jesus' encounter with the rich man. First of all, I don't think Jesus is saying that wealth is bad. That's not the point of this story. In fact, wealth when used properly and generously, can make a dramatic difference in the lives of other people. Think of all the good that's been done in a town like Nashville because of successful capitalists who have done well and they've given back and they've given to churches and philanthropies and to projects. I think what Jesus is saying is that wealth that enslaves us Wealth that keeps us from trusting God, wealth that makes us selfish and self-centered can be one of the worst things that can ever happen to us as human beings. Wealth and money can change people. It can change how they act. It can change how they live. It can change how they treat other people. And that's one of the great challenges in life, to stay true to who you are no matter what you have or don't have. Your values should stay the same. Paul doesn't say to Timothy that money is the root of all evil. Listen to what Pharaoh read. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. And there's a big difference in those two. My second takeaway is that Jesus is not saying that all of us have to sell everything we own in order to follow him. He said it to the rich man because it was his possessions rather than his character and generosity that defined him. You see, things are meant to be used and people are meant to be loved. But so often we get it backwards and we find ourselves loving things and using people. And we have it wrong. 
And unfortunately, that happens a lot in this world. We fall in love with stuff. And then the problem with that is we always want more. We always want bigger. We always want better. Third takeaway, I do think Jesus is saying that for some people, it takes a drastic change in lifestyle for the message of Christ to really take root. Some people get it, some people don't. But the statistics clearly show us that Christianity is declining in more affluent and wealthy parts of the world and it's growing rapidly and thriving in third world countries where people have very little. Hope is alive in those countries. Faith is alive, generosity is alive. But most importantly, Christ does not have to compete with all the stuff that money can buy in certain parts of the world. The choice is not whether we are going to worship God or the devil. The choice is whether we're going to worship God or mammon, as it's called in the Bible. Will we seek security in God or in money? A couple quick stories to make this point. I studied under a guy named Stanley Harawas when I was at Suwannee. He was from Duke. And Harawas, very successful, very well published, uh, probably the most famous theologian of this you know, past century. And Harawas said he bought a, he bought a, a mountain house um, not far from Durham, maybe an hour and a half drive. And he started going to the mountain house and going to the mountain house on the weekends. And, and you know, all of a sudden, he goes, I, fi- I realized that I was spending every weekend in my mountain house and I wasn't able to see my church family. And I didn't like it. So I sold the mountain house. Maybe I could go during the week, but I had to teach. Another story. It's a father of a affluent family. They lived inside the city and he decided one day they were blessed and had a, a really big house and a swimming pool and you know all kinds of fancy things. And he said, I'm gonna drive my son out to the country and I'm gonna just show him how poor people live so that he'll know. So he drove him out to the country and they went to this farm and you know the, they saw there was kind of a, 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 an old kind of trailer on this land and, and they had you know like six or seven dogs running around, a goat and some chickens. And um, there was kind of a, a, a big lake that was dug out on the property and the father and the son just kind of walked around. And they got back in the car to come back into the city and he said, he said now son, you, you know, did you learn some lessons? Do you understand, you know, how poor people live? And said, oh, yeah, Dad, I got it. So, well, what did you learn? He goes, Dad, he goes, this is what I learned. He goes, you know, we have a swimming pool, but they have this massive lake. He said, Dad, we got one dog, but they got five dogs, a goat, and some chickens. He said, we have lights on our trees that shoot up in the front, and it's really because, Dad, they got stars that illumine up the whole backyard. He said, Dad, thank you for taking me to show me how poor we really are. Fourth takeaway, there's a major difference in life between moral respectability and true discipleship. Basically, moral respectability revolves around not doing things, whereas true discipleship revolves around actually proactively doing things. Being a Christian requires much more than just being a nice and decent person. That's a start, but it requires service and sacrifice. There's a difference. Alex texted me Friday night. He was serving at Room in the Inn, and he said, we're just leaving Room at the Inn. I'm so thankful our church has this ministry. You know, when the rich man approached Jesus, 
He told him that he had obeyed all the commandments since his youth and he had never done anybody any harm. And, and that was true. But for Jesus, this was not enough. It became obvious that although the rich man had never done harm to others, he had also never gone out of his way to help other people. He was comfortable. He was complacent. He probably lived in a, in a bubble. He may have even been arrogant. But he wasn't necessarily living a life that put other people first. And Jesus could sense it. Jesus could read people like nobody else. I'm convinced of that. And we talked last Sunday about how following him includes denying self in a world that's full of self-centeredness and putting other people first in a world full of self-absorption. And so in this culture, denying self is really, really hard. Lastly, this morning, my final takeaway. If we're not careful, money and possessions have the ability to completely fix our hearts on this world. When we become wealthy and when we obtain many earthly possessions, when we run the risk of forgetting that we can't take these things with us when we leave, it stays behind. And so the question we have to ask is, what kind of legacy do we want to leave? And people who live a meaningful life have been able to answer that important question, what type of legacy do I want to leave behind? What type of values? What types of priorities? What types of children? What type of life? At the end of the passage, Jesus says, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And I believe he said that because whenever we accumulate stuff, we get consumed by it. We get distracted by it. And sometimes, sometimes we turn it into our God and our idol. And God gets pushed aside. It gets hard to think about life beyond this world if we're so wrapped up with everything in this world. And the disciples, as usual, were confused. And they said, who can be saved? And that's when Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, this is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Because that's what faith is. Believing that God will work through us in our brokenness to make a difference in this world. Salvation is not something that we earn or achieve on our own. It's a free gift from God that we call grace. We can't begin to achieve it, attain it. And when we become overly focused on our stuff and our possessions and we say, gosh, I just want more, I just want more, I just want to live in a house like that, we sometimes begin to think that we can secure our own lives. Any person who places their complete trust in themselves and in their possessions will not be saved. But only the person who trusts in the transforming power and redeeming love of God can truly enter freely into salvation. You know, we just sent another group down to Guatemala. Planning to take my family next spring on a family trip. If you want to join me, let me know. But when I was down there, well, first of all, you need to know that we've, almost, we've built almost 60 houses in Guatemala, Woodmont. We've sponsored close to 300 children and elderly people over the past 12 years. This church is making a difference in that country. I want you to know that. But when I was down there, what blew me away is that the Guatemalan people who have little or nothing, for whatever reason, they seem to have far more joy in their lives 
than many people who have plenty. And I just wonder, why? Why is that? Amen.